Welcome to Unite Immigrant Families. I'm Rosemary Vega, an immigration attorney with over 20 years of experience uniting and keeping families together. If you are looking for immigration information, stick around and listen to me and my fellow immigration attorneys as we discuss what's new and debunk myths. Please note, this is not legal advice and no legal advice will be given on this podcast. Hi, and welcome to Unite Immigrant Families. Today, we're going to talk about humanitarian relief, meaning U visas, T's, BAWAs, um, SIJs, possibly. And today, we have Brandon Roche with us. He's a good friend and immigration attorney here in Houston. Brandon, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I uh, have a private practice here in uh, Houston right now. Be moving to Colorado very shortly and continuing my practice virtually, where I represent clients and family and humanitarian immigration issues all over the world, all over the United States, really. And uh, before that, I spent several years in the nonprofit world focusing on children's immigration law, both with Catholic Charities of Houston and with later uh, the Children's Immigration Law Academy under the ABA, and focusing a lot on unaccompanied minors' issues and other children's immigration law issues. Awesome. So, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to talk about U-Visas. Let's start off with U-Visas. All right. Um, What, can you tell us, just I guess give us a summary of what is a U-Visa? A U-Visa is a visa for victims of serious crimes. So the idea behind them is, the policy idea behind it is great. It's to allow immigrants who do not have any status to... um, not be victimized and to be able to come out of the the shadows, if you will, and uh, report things to law enforcement and get the protection of law enforcement when they need it. So the idea is to allow people to not fear law enforcement and to be able to cooperate with and and, uh, help the police prosecute crimes. So you said specific crimes. What kind of crimes? has to be a serious crime. So typically when I'm doing a consult, I tell a client, it's got to be like a felony level, although it doesn't have to be a felony. Uh, The wording is, I'm pretty sure, serious crime. And that means um, usually it's got to be something that involves um, serious bodily injury, you know, like assault, um, you know, anything above assault, of course, would qualify. Or if there's maybe a gun involved, that becomes a felony all of a sudden. And so you've got to show that it was a serious crime. And then there also has to be um, harm to the individual. So a serious, so assault, aggravated assault, something with a gun, maybe. Yeah. Even, uh, you know, kidnapping or anything of that, that nature mm-hmm. would, um, would rise to the level. You know, I tell clients, uh, you know, it's not going to work for something like, Oh, someone, uh, stole my wallet. Right. Okay. Uh, but maybe if they held a gun to your head and stole your wallet, that might rise it to that level because then you've got a gun involved, it jumps to an aggravated felony. And uh, depending on the harm that you, as as the victim, you know, kind of incurred, right. it could rise to that level for and sure. What about like domestic violence? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, domestic violence, you know, that to me is, um, it's assault for one. Uh, typically it involves physical violence, but it doesn't have to always involve physical violence either. It can be, um, you know, other forms of abuse certainly so, could rise to that level. So like mental abuse? Yes. Mental and emotional abuse 
definitely rise to that level. And that's the kind of thing where we would want to show, show the harm the individual uh, incurred by getting something like a psychosocial evaluation, like a, have them go to a psychologist and get a, or a counselor and get a report saying, you know, what that person, what uh, has happened to that person because of the, the, mental the incident abuse, or the mental abuse. The yeah. mental and emotional and maybe even financial abuse that occurred. Yeah. Okay. Wow. And so we've got that it's, this is basically a U visa is basically for, it could be anybody who doesn't have status in the United States. Right. And they could be a victim of, of a serious crime, but we're probably looking more at like domestic violence, sexual assault, uh, serious crimes such as having a weapon, you know, involved in the crime. And what else do they need to show? So you have to show that you have, and a U visa is kind of unique in the immigration world. For, first, I want to just back up about the mm -hmm. idea of um, someone without status. It can be someone that has some form of status, like TPS, for example, Mm -hmm. um, is temporary protected status, but it's not something that puts you on the pathway to adjustment of status leading to permanent residency, right? So if you have TPS, you can still apply for a U visa and then maybe get on that path. Okay. There's a whole other issue we'll go into with how long this all takes right. and whether or not it's worth it, but um, because U visas are backlogged. But, um, and so that means DACA recipients as well, people who have DACA. Sure, absolutely. So TPS or DACA, if you've got a work permit from there and you're a victim of a crime, they may want to look into applying for a U visa as well. Yeah. I would awesome. definitely look at that. Awesome. And so what is, what else do, so they, you've got to be a victim of a crime and you also have to report the crime. So you have to uh, have what we lawyers call the 918B. It's mm -hmm. the law enforcement certification. So law enforcement certification um, is going to be signed off on by a law enforcement agency and that can be kind of a broad range of, of um, agencies. It could be the local police department, it could be the sheriff's department, but it could also be the prosecutor's office or even a judge. Uh, so you've got to have a law enforcement agency in that role signing off that you um, not only were the victim of, of one of these serious crimes, and I think it's, I, th well, I want to say there's like 27 different crimes on the actual form that they have to check the box for. The reason we aren't speaking about specific crimes when we talk about this, this chart is because the chart is made by the federal government, the, right. the law enforcement certification, and each state has their own different criminal laws. And so, you know, what qualifies as an aggravated felony in Texas might not qualify in Iowa or somewhere. So that's why it's, it's not as clear cut as maybe most people think it should be. But point being, you have to have a law enforcement agency sign off that you were a victim of one of these crimes and check the specific crime, and also that you were helpful in the investigation of the crime. Right. So that doesn't mean that someone has to be arrested or prosecuted uh, or much less convicted even. But it does mean that you have to have helped this law enforcement agency investigate the crime. A lot of times that's simply filing a police report, giving them as much information as you have. Um, and then, you know, if they call you back a month later, you take the call and you say, yeah, okay, and here's the follow-up questions and you're helpful throughout the process. And um, typically they will then be willing to sign off on that. Right. So I had, I once had a client who, um, she was robbed by gunpoint and assaulted. Um, and the robber ran off, right? And she actually ran after 
the robber and uh, was able to get some information. So when she called the police, she told the police all of the stuff and that she ran after him. And the police looked at her and said, you were crazy. You shouldn't have ran after him. He could have, you know, he had a gun. He could have hurt you. He could have possibly killed you, shot you something. So that's not necessary, right, in a U visa scenario. To chase the perpetrator? Correct. No, definitely not necessary to do that. Probably not recommended, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So even the police told her, what are you doing? No, you know, you need to keep yourself safe. So I think that's something that uh, people need to keep into in mind as well. Right? Yeah, don't, you don't <laughs> do anything crazy just because, you know, I, I can't imagine someone in the moment thinking, okay, now what do I need to do to then qualify for a visa while they're being the victim? But Yeah, I don't think that's what that's she not, was thinking. Yeah. She just really wanted to... You want to get your stuff back right. or whatever they've stolen, yeah. Yeah, that was her, her no. and, and the idea of harm can also be mental harm even when it is uh, something like an aggravated felony. So I, uh, I had a consult recently where... A guy was leaving his workplace. It was late at night, and he was going to his car. Someone came up behind him and put a gun to him. Um, and he kind of, you know, he didn't turn. He kind of, you know, knew the person was there and kind of felt the gun. But, um, you know, give me your wallet, give me your phone. The guy reached in, took the stuff out, of, and then ran off. So he wasn't physically harmed, really. He was obviously shaken up by it. He reported it to the police. He got his employer to pull the, you know, the cameras from the parking lot and turn that over to the police, and it was helpful. And you know, I told him we're probably still going to need to get a psychosocial evaluation for you because he talked about having lost sleep and called in um, to work several days thereafter because he, you know, was just kind of, you know, out of sorts, of course. So you know, it doesn't have to be physical harm, I guess, is my point. And there's ways that we as immigration lawyers who do these types of cases um, can help our clients understand what it is they need to document to get to that point um, when we're going to apply. Yeah, yeah. And so what, um, so let's say we have an individual, they've got their, they've reported the crime, whichever law enforcement agency, whether it's the police department or maybe the DA's office or somebody signs off on this and they give it to you and they come to your office, what happens next? So they come, the, the client comes to my office mm -hmm. with the I-918B already signed yeah. off. Great, that's one less step that we gotta do before we can then file the I-918, which is the actual UVS application. Um, now the 918B itself, the law enforcement certification is typically only good for six months after it's been signed off on. I say typically, it is only valid for six months after it's been signed yeah. off on. So as long as it was signed, within that, that range until the date we didn't go file the 918. So six months. And in my experience, no law enforcement agency is going to re-sign that, that form again. Um, it could be different in different parts of the country, but at least here in Harris County and some of the surrounding counties, they're not re-signing those certifications. Right. So it's really important that you don't wait to the 11th hour to file your U visa application with USCIS. Right. Absolutely. Um, and that, that brings up a really valid point about the differences in protocols between all the law enforcement agencies. You know, Harris County Sheriff's Office, and I don't know their current policy because I haven't filed one in the last couple months with them, but um, 
you know, they might only sign off on crimes that were committed within the last two or three years. Other offices around the state I've heard will only sign off on things that are within the statute of limitations. So that means that let's say it was a robbery um, and you were injured for whatever, to whatever means. Um, but if they can only prosecute that for the next five years and then the statute of limitations has run, that means that they can no longer prosecute that crime. Then that law enforcement agency might now say, well, if you were robbed in 2013, we're not going to sign off on it now because we can't do anything about it. Right. So there are other time limitations that you have to consider with when you ask for it. But if they already have the 918B signed, the law enforcement certification, then yeah, that six months is ticking from the day they get it. And it is, I've never had anybody sign a second one. I've only asked once or twice, honestly. Um, but even then they, they've declined. Right. You know, sometimes you can go to a supervisor and beg and ask, you know, given the circumstances, I would think, you know, if you could show the person was, incapacitated or whatever, they might be willing to, to entertain the idea of signing it again, but it's pretty hard. And right. I tell the clients, it's not, unless we have a really good excuse, they're not going to. Right. Do it. Definitely not recommended. And so let me, let me go back to a scenario real quick before we move on. Um, let's say, um, let's say someone is a spouse. Someone's spouse was murdered. Would that spouse be eligible for a U visa? Probably, is the, the lawyer answer, right? Um, yeah, I yeah. mean, if, if the spouse was there at the scene of the crime yeah. when the murder happened, for sure. Um, but even if they were not there, they would probably have, they would probably be able to at least ask for the certification, for sure. Um, right. Given that they were the spouse, they likely were helpful in the investigation because they maybe provided information, not about the perpetrator, but okay, where did my, my husband go that night? Who was he with that night? Who did he talk to? You know, whatever, right. all that is helpful. In the, and, and the harm is obviously there. You've lost right. your spouse. Right. So there's, there's definitely ways to do that. Yes. If they were present during the crime, then I, that's right. pretty right. clear. Yeah. So I just wanted to bring that up because I've had that scenario in the past and we were able to get a U visa for this individual, but you know, I just want to make sure that people out there do recognize that you don't necessarily, if you're, if it's a, happened to your spouse, still go talk to a lawyer because you want to check to see maybe you qualify. No, I'm pretty sure it does have to be an immediate relative in that situation. Yeah. So, you know, it's not going to work if it was your cousin. Again, if you're at the scene of the crime, yes. But um, if it's, a more attenuated relationship and Correct. you're not at the scene of the crime, there's going to be a lot more dots to connect before it's going to be viable. Yeah. Yeah. So now we're going to get to the timing of U visas. How long does it take to get a U visa? Oh, here's the unfortunate part is that U visas are incredibly backlogged. So they only authorize 10,000 per year mm -hmm. to be granted. And right now, I want to say it's six to eight year of wait on a U visa. And wow. so that, you know, do the math, 60, 80,000 pending right now. Mm -hmm. um, the other unfortunate part of that is that people don't get work authorization while it's pending. Right. Um, and is you that get it towards the very end with prima facie determinations and all that, but um, you don't typically get it while it's pending. But yes, to answer your question, it is changing. The Biden administration came out with a rule July-ish, I want to say, of 2021. So. And 
they are issuing what are called bona fide determinations of a pending U visa, whereby the person with a pending petition then gets a work authorization and their derivatives. So one other really great thing about U visas is that the derivatives can qualify. So if the mom is a victim of a crime and her children also could qualify as derivatives for a U visa. And that means that they would all then benefit from getting work authorization and then eventually U visas and legal permanent residency. Yeah. The idea, again, policy-wise, is we're not going to break up a family over this. Right. right. Um, and someone might not be willing to come forward to law enforcement otherwise if they thought, okay, my, maybe I'll get to stay here, but then my kids are still going to be in danger. So what's going to happen? Right. So um, going back, there's a huge backlog, and it's problematic. They're working through the backlog on the bona fide determinations mm -hmm. to try to get people work authorization. But as of about two weeks ago, last I heard at least, they were only on the 2016 applications. So that shows you how backlogged they are, A, and it shows you that it's going to be a while before any recently filed applications start getting their work authorizations. And then, of course, any newly filed applications get it in any kind of, you know, real-time yeah. access. Yeah. So, and let me just ask you this. Are there any situations where a crime victim would not be eligible for a UPSA? Not eligible. Um, well, if the crime doesn't qualify, right? If it's not serious enough, if there was no harm in the end. Um, other than that, I'm not thinking of too what, many, or maybe I'm missing something. What about if someone... I feel like this is it. a pop quiz. No. <laughs> <laughs> of course it's not a pop quiz. But, you know, I've had it where um, I've had a U visa applicant and then they were uh, they themselves were convicted of a crime, so the U visa was denied. Okay. You know? Yeah. I've so if they, if they well, if, certainly if they were part of the criminal enterprise, I guess that was taking place, they probably would be disqualified. Yeah. Then, yeah. I mean, this happened after. But just having know. a conviction for another crime unrelated to this wouldn't automatically disqualify you, um, but it might make it harder depending on what your conviction is, probably. Yeah. Yeah. So it's. So just be very careful, I guess, for our audience, for our listeners out there. Um, you definitely want to seek legal counsel because different things happen at different times. And so you never know, uh, you know, policy changes or procedures that happen. So just keep that informed. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm sorry, this just brought up another memory, though. I represented a woman once talking about the damage, right? She was in a, a laundromat. Um, guy came in with a gun and uh, robbed her of her money, which was a dollar and quarters because she was in our laundromat. So we had aggravated assault, but we didn't have serious harm. Mm -hmm. However, he then forced her to leave the laundromat and go upstairs to the apartment building to, I guess, to try to try to get more money. So he forced her to, to leave and go upstairs. And then on the way, somebody scared him and he ran off. I said, hey, that's kidnapping. So even though they, they eventually caught the guy and charged him, but they were, did not charge him with kidnapping. They just charged him with aggravated assault. Um, we were able to use that and show that to the law enforcement agency signing off on it and say, hey, this, this qualifies as kidnapping right here. And um, on top of everything else, we were able to get it through. Awesome. And the kidnapping, the, the idea behind the harm there is it could go to a lot more mental. Right. So we had her, you know, again, we did a counselor's report and everything about the incident, and, and she was certainly traumatized by it. Right. And that goes to my next question. Um, how often do you use counselor reports? 
on a UV, I mean, unless there's serious physical injury that's that's obvious, then in almost every case, I yeah. would say. Um, I, I've had one or two, I think, where like the the person was actually shot and you know had a bullet wound and was in the hospital for a couple days and more, I think. Um, you know, so that was very obvious and blatant and we used the medical reports and I didn't see the need to then also send them to a counselor because it was so, so blatant, but, yeah. um, in almost every other case, I probably would use those. And so that, I mean, that really covers you visas cause we've, you know, we've covered the majority of you visas. We've given some scenarios, um, and they're taking forever. Yeah. So it is really kind of a last resort, unfortunately, because of how long they take. And I say last resort because it, if there's any other way to get someone on the road to permanent residency status, we're going to do that um, because it just takes so long. Otherwise, now with the new bona fide determinations, especially once they catch up, it'll be great to allow people to get work authorization in the meantime. And maybe that won't be such a, a long shot kind right, of thing. Right. right. Yeah. So my next question is going to shift and I wanted to shift to maybe special immigrant juvenile cases. Um can you tell us just what is a special immigrant juvenile case? All right. Take me back <laughs> here. And, and I'm going to caveat all of this with, I don't currently even take special immigrant juvenile cases. I did nothing but that for years. And part of my um, self-care as a solo practitioner in immigration law was that when I started my own firm, I moved away from that. Now I still uh, am very involved with the children's immigration world and, and help as much as I can and and stay up to speed on, on what's going on, but I don't actually take them. Um, and I'll, mainly, honestly, because of the family court side of things, but I'll get to that yeah. in a second. So a, a special immigrant juvenile status is status available to a minor mm -hmm. who's in the United States without a parent or guardian, and they are um, they uh, were abandoned, abused, or neglected by one or both parents back home. So I guess they could have a parent or guardian at this point in time, but typically the, the road to get a judicial order. So you have to have a state court judge sign off that this child indeed was abandoned, abused, or neglected, and that um, the order is not for immigration purposes, and that it's not in the child's best interest to go back to their home country. Okay. So, so I have yeah. a question for you. You've got a child who is here and may or may not have at least one parent mm -hmm. in their life, right? It doesn't have to be both parents. It just, ha it can be one or one parent. Or yeah. So a lot of times we're talking parents. about the good or the bad parent, right? The bad parent can be the abuser and they could be coming to the United States to live with good parent, mm -hmm. right? But it doesn't have to be a parent. It could be aunt, uncle, cousin, older sister, whatever. Um, and that person does not have to have guardianship or conservatorship over the child to, to do this. Although in Texas, the typical vehicle that we use to get the state court order is a SAPSER, which is a suit involving parent-child relationship, and it then confers conservatorship over the child to this adult. Okay. Um, so state court orders. It's not this state judge isn't conveying or isn't giving legal permanent resident or any type of immigration status to no. to this child, right? It. This state court order is really just saying, we recognize that you've been abused, abandoned, or neglected, and this adult person who is petitioning the court for uh, conservatorship or custody or guardianship, however you want to state it, because obviously in different states, mm -hmm. it's it's going to be different. Um, 
that judge is saying we're, you know, deciding and giving an order providing that adult the custody of over this child. Yes. And then it also has it said it's not in their best interest to return to home country. Right. On top of that. But right. it, it and I mentioned earlier the idea of it can't be for immigration purposes. So typically in those situations, the conservator, the guardian, the custodian um, is also going to be conferred power to do things like, you know, enroll them in school, make medical decisions and all these other things that people would have to do over a minor. Right. And the minor side of things brings up another issue, right? Mm -hmm. um, in the federal law for special immigrant juvenile status, that means anyone up to the age of 21 can apply. If you've got the state court order, you can then apply for the status. The status puts you on the road to permanent residency. Mm -hmm. um, the Texas law and several other states, in most states, someone turns 18 and they're no longer a minor, right? Right. In some states, they have allowed people to get these types of orders up to the age of 21 so that they can then continue and apply for the federal immigration status. Um, but in Texas, that's not the case. Right, because Texas is hardline 18 years old, and that they're pretty strict on that, it sounds like, it seems like to me. Um, and, you know, it's really important that... that um, the SAPSER, at least here in Texas, what it's called is a SAPSER, because mm -hmm. that is what gives the this adult person custody. And it also provides for all of that information, like providing medical care, making sure they're enrolled in school, provide, you know, helping them uh, get whatever financial needs they, they make, going to the doctor, things like that. Yep. So that's, I guess, very, very important. And then proving all of that up before the judge is important as well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you have to, of course, of course, prove to a judge that this abandonment, abuse, or neglect took place. You have to prove to them that um, it's not in this child's best interest to return. You have to prove to them that the adult who is there is best fit to then care for the child. Um, so the judge might ask about the person's finances, about their ability to support you know a child yeah. in this situation so you're gonna have to approve all those things up in the course of the of obtaining the state court order that you then use later to file the i360 which is the actual application for special immigrant juvenile status so how long generally speaking if you know i mean i don't know some courts are take longer than others I'm, i understand that but how long does it generally take to get a state court order I don't think there's a generally on anything there. Um, mm -hmm. The the problem, at least from my point of view, with this whole idea bar, that's for another podcast. Yeah, and, and that know, gets very complicated. It, it, that We're gets not very complicated. No, no, weeds. we won't. But it just shows, you know, that it's not it's not going. Is that you're at the whims of the local judges? So you know, in Harris County, there's probably fifteen or more family court judges. It depends on who you get. It depends on how busy their docket is. It depends on whether or not they like these types of cases, mm -hmm. um, how soon they might be able to get you in or how long they might make you wait. In some counties in Texas, there might only be one judge that handles these cases. Maybe you can just call them up and then get you in tomorrow, but maybe they're going to say, I don't like these types of cases. I've had judges say, we don't do immigrant cases. Right. Um, and they're just going to sit you on a docket that takes forever and the child turns 18 in the meantime and they don't care. Right. Right. So it, it really does matter where you are. And then even within where you are, which court you're assigned to. 
Yeah, yeah. So let's assume someone gets a state court order and it has all the information that they need. Um, once they have that state court order, what happens next? So you take the state court order and it becomes your your primary piece of evidence with your I-360 application, which is the application for special immigrant juvenile status. Um, and you file that with USCIS. Okay. Then you wait. Do and you know how long uh, it's taking for the I-360s to get approved with USCIS? I don't have, um, I haven't done one currently, so I don't know. Uh, typically, I would say it's about a year. Yeah. Um, that's about what they take for almost all applications, um, maybe longer sometimes. Right. And with COVID right now, it's impossible to give any timelines on USCIS stuff. But True. True. Um, true. That's just for the I-360. Right. Yeah. And so let's say a year later, the I-360 gets approved. Then what? So uh, what would what used to happen um, back in the day, I guess, was that you could apply for the I-360 and your I-485 together at the same time. Because the visa category that these visas come out of, which is the EB-4 category, it's an employment-based visa for some right. reason, um, they were current. And when it's current, you can apply for both at the same time, which was great. You do it all at once. Uh, your client gets uh, their I-360 approved. They get called in for the I-485 interview all at once. Boom, they walk out with their permanent residency approved. Um, starting in probably 20, probably 2018, I want to say, um, maybe, maybe before that, maybe in 2017, there started to be a backlog on these types of visas from specific countries. So if the person was from Honduras, El Salvador, or Guatemala, there was a backlog. And now there's also a backlog on um, Mexican yeah, nationals as well. Um, so that meant that you could still file your I-360, but you had to wait until the priority date was current for the rest for the rest of the process for the i-485 and that was about two years behind and i think i looked it up recently and it was about two years maybe two and a half even yeah that's about right backlogged on honduras guatemala and el salvador um, and there's a separate timeline on mexico and then the rest of the world is still current so if you do have for some reason um a minor who qualifies otherwise for sij from somewhere else they could apply all at once right and then once they get their green card, they're they're good for five years, and then they can apply for U.S. citizenship, right? Yes. Awesome. However, with the SIJ, uh, these cases, are they able to apply for their parents? No. That is one catch with the SIJ status, uh, special immigrant juvenile status. In some places, they call it SIGIS. There's yeah. all sorts of ways. Um so you can never apply for a parent, and it doesn't even matter if it's the good parent, you can't apply, you can't later petition for them. So let's say the child becomes a permanent resident or even later a citizen and they're over 21, they cannot then petition for their parent. Right. Um, because of the way the law is written, even if this was the good parent, you know, it makes sense to me you can never petition for the bad parent. But um, I've always thought, honestly, that that is probably not constitutional. It creates two classes of citizenship. Once you're a citizen, you're a citizen. And if citizens can apply for their parent once they're 21, then any citizen should be able to do that regardless of how you obtain the citizenship. So to me, that's a, there's a constitutional question there, but never had a case that it's allowed me to take it to the Supreme yeah. Court on that one. Yeah, it, it is what it is, I guess. But 
that's SIJs for you, and and they're still not easy to get. They're not easy to get in certain places. The hard part is the state court order, honestly. Now, USCIS for a long time was looking behind state court orders and questioning judges' orders. There's been a lot of litigation over that in the last several years, and they're not doing that as much anymore, or they're not doing it to such an egregious level. But it's still there's still some hurdles even once you get that order. So, yeah, yeah it's not a super clear path. Awesome. Well, Brandon, thank you very much. We've run out of time. So thank you very much. Um, that's it for today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Unite Immigrant Families. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want more information about me or my guest, please email me at uniteimmigrantfamilies at gmail.com. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. I hope you join us on this bi-weekly podcast. No legal advice was provided and none will ever be provided on this podcast.